Comics. Comics. Welcome to the Omen Comics Podcast, where we talk about our experiences, influences, and tips on writing comics as the creators of the Omenverse. And as geeks, we often like to celebrate geek holidays, as well as talk about our favorite comics, television shows, and movies, too. I'm your host, Michael Nunley, and with me, as always, is my friend and co-worker, Steve Sellers. Today, we're going to be having an in-depth conversation about Sherlock Holmes, the greatest detective that ever lived. And uh, we're also going to be digging into Sherlock Holmes' uh, connection to the creation of uh, Michael Nero, one of our own characters. So, uh, Steve, you uh, are the, the resident Sherlock Holmes scholar, as I would call it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Sherlock Holmes? Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, Sherlock Holmes is one of the most famous characters in the consulting detective genre. Um, while he didn't create that, um, in many ways he defined that. So everything that we think about when we come think of uh, consulting detectives, we usually think in terms of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, so a lot of times when we think of you know characters like uh, Nero or like uh, Simon Archard from Ruse or something like that, we think of him in terms of uh, oh that's a Sherlock Holmes type character. Uh, so you know he's pretty much not only a genre but an archetype in many ways, um, and that's just because uh, when uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle created him, um, he left such an indelible impact, um, and he basically created everything that we know about that genre. So for example, uh, we, when we think about like a genius who's defined by his uh, powers of observation and his deductive skills, I mean that's that's Holmes, that's that's Doyle. Um, Holmes is a highly skilled, uh, competent man character. Um, he's skilled in fields like criminology, different scientific fields, uh, botany, uh, geology, things like this. Um, out, of, you know, out of curiosity, what mm -hmm. what types of scientific fields is he uh, versed in? Uh, yeah, I was talking a little bit about that. Uh, chemistry, uh, obviously. I mean, when we start looking about uh, his drugs, I mean, that that's something where he usually used his chemistry for. Um, he knew a lot about botany. Um, he knew a lot about like plant life and things like that. Uh, he understood how poisons work, for example. Um, oh. So all the, a little bit of physics, I believe, you know, those kinds of fields, or at least as they were practiced um, in the late 19th century. <laughs> uh, so yeah, he, he knew all about those things. Uh, and he also knew the sweet sciences as well, uh, particularly boxing, um, but he was also a good swordsman and things like that. So um, actually this is what they did did, uh, and they used um, in the Robert Downey Jr. version of the movie, um, they focused on him being more of a fighter. So, so that, all that does come from Doyle. Um, huh. In addition to that, he was also a master of disguise. Um, he would often go incognito uh, to gather information to solve his cases. You know, he would use masks and, you know, various uh, sort of disguises to, to hide himself, uh, things like that. Gee, I wonder where Batman got that. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I would say I wouldn't be surprised if the shadow got to a certain amount from Holmes as well. Um, particularly with the Baker Street Irregulars, I think that probably influenced his agents. Uh, 
And then uh, beyond that, um, as a consulting detective, he'll work for anybody who hires him, but he's an independent operative. Um, he will work with Scotland Yard. Um, I don't think they like him too much because he tends to show them up every time he goes over there and tells them how they're doing it badly. So he's, um, he's, he, he is very much an insufferable genius in that respect. Um, but the thing with Holmes is that um, he's motivated by the intellectual challenge and stimulation. Um, he's trying to stave off this constant boredom because he's so much smarter than everybody else and has to find something interesting to occupy his mind or he goes stir crazy. Um, he's very easily bored. He's looking for new problems to solve. So he goes into criminology and detective work, um, you know, just to, 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 to hold off the boredom, basically. Um, so he'll only take a case if he finds it interesting enough. Um, you don't don't go him, you know, finding out who took your wallet because he's just going to say no. That's that's boring. I'm not going to do that. Um, he can be very cold, unemotional. Um, he's really terrible at building relationships. Um, and in fact, his only real friend is Watson most of the time, uh, maybe to a certain extent, Mrs. Hudson, who's his landlady. Uh, but for the most part, he's just, you know, a complete jerk. Uh, well, maybe not a complete jerk in the novels. Uh, the, the jerk aspects are kind of uh, upplayed, up I think, in the, in the TV adaptations and things like that. But mostly he's just cold and unemotional and just uh, focused on his job. Um, he will make use of agents. Um, the Baker Street Irregulars was a group of uh, street kids that he would use. Um, he had other allies, like his older brother, Mycroft. Um, and he also had a, a bloodhound that he brought in. And if you've seen the BBC version, you see all of that. Um, now, he doesn't know everything. And really, it's like if it doesn't concern uh, his job as a detective, he usually doesn't care about it. Uh, so like astronomy, why does he care about astronomy? He doesn't because it, for the most part, it doesn't um, factor into his cases. Uh, there have been times when that's been used against him, though. So that is one of those things that tends to, to play against him. He's just so hyper-focused on being a detective. Uh, uh, the other main thing, and one of the things that definitely comes up with Nero, is that he turned to drug use um, back then. Um, and in the original stories, um, it wasn't, it was very frowned on, but it wasn't like, you know, real recognized like a scourge the way it is today. There wasn't like a drug war a hundred years ago the way there is today. Um, so Holmes would basically use um, morphine and cocaine in a 7% solution, and um, nobody was able to stop him from doing this. So, um, well, it, cocaine it, and morphine were both legal at that time. Yeah, yeah, they were. Nobody, nobody realized back then, uh, like, how destructive they were. So, yeah, they, that was a big thing. Um, we've kind of adapted it for our own purposes, but we'll get into that later. <laughs> Um, he is well known for living in 221B Baker Street. And uh, fun fact, this street actually exists. I don't think the, the building exists, but uh, you can definitely walk along Baker Street. I actually did one point when I went to London years and years ago. So yeah, it was kind of fun. That must uh, have been. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A little surreal even. <laughs> Um, now, most of the stories are set in like the Victorian era to the Edwardian era. So we're talking about 1880 to 1914, that kind of period. Um, not always, though, particularly in later adaptations. Sometimes they modernize it. But I, I particularly kind of find that the Victorian stuff feels more true to Holmes because it's more reflective of uh, Doyle and the time in which he lived. But, you know, they've definitely made adaptations and changes in its work. So, you know, that's definitely... Um, 
not been a problem for the character. Um, in terms of how Doyle came up with this, um, he looked to Edgar Allan Poe. Um, Edgar Allan Poe created the detective story and the detective hero. Um, if you've heard of the character uh, C. Auguste Dupin, um, that in fact is Poe's detective character. So if you've ever read like um, the Purloined Letter or the Rue Morgue, the case of the Rue Morgue, um, those are Poe stories uh, featuring Dupin and uh, Holmes and Doyle read them. I mean, he, he very much absorbed them. Um, in, in addition to uh, other detective heroes that he read, um, there was a French uh, detective hero called Monsieur Lecon. I forget, I don't think that I'm, I'm probably butchering the French, but it was a character by Emile Gabriel and uh, he got the speech and the mannerisms from him and Doyle admitted to this. Um, but I would say probably his biggest influence was someone he knew uh, when he was at the Royal Infirmary at Edinburgh. Um, and Doyle worked for this man as a clerk and that's a man named uh, Dr. Joseph Bell. And he was somebody who was really into um, criminology or at least what became criminology at that time. And he was a, he was a very well-renowned uh, scholar at that point. And um, so Doyle would use uh, his inspiration and his knowledge of Bell and mix it in with these fictional detective heroes that he read. And then he created Sherlock Holmes uh, as a pastiche of those things. Um, and there might have been other ones that, as well that he included. Uh, we don't know for sure. Uh, I believe there was a German character that, that he read and um, one other one, but um, we don't know for sure if he, if he read those or not. Um, so from there, we'll look at the, the history of the character and basically how he came into publication. Um, he debuted and uh, studied in Scarlet in uh, 1887. That was his first novel. Um, he, I think he wrote uh, two novels uh, at that point. Um, but I don't think Holmes really became popular until uh, the Strand magazine uh, featured uh, Holmes' uh, short stories. And uh, I believe that was in 1891 uh, with a, a scandal in Bohemia. If uh, you're a fan of Irene Adler, the, uh, the woman, as uh, Holmes would call her, that was that story. So yeah, so that was the story that really hit and it was a big hit and, it, and it's a really good story and I would recommend uh, reading that if, if you haven't. Um, and so that kind of started a really long run, um, which at the end ended up being four novels and 56 short stories. But it almost didn't get there because in 1893, Doyle got tired of writing Sherlock Holmes and said, you know what, uh, I want to move on to other things. I want to be a literary writer. I want to do serious writing, darn it. And so um, he wrote The Final Problem, uh, which killed off Sherlock Holmes and uh, was the first appearance of his arch enemy, uh, Professor Moriarty. Um, so that ended up being also a really memorable, great story as well. And I would definitely recommend that story as well. Uh, and for a while, uh, Doyle did move on to projects after that. Um, there were definitely other characters that he wrote. Um, if you've ever heard of The Lost World with Professor Challenger, I think that that was around that period. Uh, various other characters that he created. Um, I know he did some historical novels as well. So yeah, Doyle was pretty active with that. Um, but um, eventually, fan demand was so tremendous that they brought him back. Uh, Doyle was like, okay, fine, you can have your Sherlock Holmes. And so um, that uh, created uh, a, a novel that probably most people know when it comes to Sherlock Holmes, and that is The Hound of the Baskervilles in oh, 1902. Yeah. yeah, 
I know you have a lot to say about that one, Mike. So we're we're definitely going to talk about that. Um, this was set. It was set before Holmes's death, um, but it was published before he returned a year later. And so, um, yeah. So this was kind of like this mysterious, almost like a ghost story in a sense. But it was very much a Sherlock Holmes story. But we'll get we'll kind of talk a little bit about its influences later. Um, and then a year later, in 1903, um, the Adventure of the Empty House came back. Uh, came out, and that is when uh, Doyle finally brought him back. Um, and in the end, Doyle is kind of glad he wrote it in the end because that ended up being among one of the favorite stories he ever wrote with the character. <laughs> so uh, in the end, he kind of realized, all right, you, maybe you guys had a point. I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm kind of glad that I did this. So he did that. And he would do um, home stories for the next uh, 14 years on and off. Um, the last one uh, was his last bow, uh, which was said, which was in 1917, uh, focusing on Holmes' involvement in the First World War and, and what he did for around that time. Um, but there are other stories that uh, came out for the next 10 years after that. Um, and in fact, the last uh, book of Holmes stories that came out was the Casebook of Sherlock Holmes uh, in 1927. Um, so yeah, there's still like a, a couple more years uh, of home stories that uh, that he did at that point. Was the um, casebook like a collection of his short yeah. stories? Yeah, it was a collection of his last short stories that were unpublished, and they just put them together and they just put it out. So yeah, um, and and that was and that's the Holmes canon. That's the last story in the official Holmes canon. Um, but that wasn't the end of Holmes because uh, everybody wanted to write Sherlock Holmes, even if Doyle wasn't. And uh, people were not above like shamelessly ripping him off <laughs> uh, to put him in their stories, um, including like even famous people. Uh, Maurice LeBlanc, who uh, created uh, the gentleman thief Arsène Lupin, did his own version of Holmes. Um, and actually, he actually put him in as Sherlock Holmes until uh, Doyle sued him. <laughs> And then he had to change the name uh, to Hairlock Schmolms. Um, and if you've ever played the game Persona 5, you, you will see a reference to this uh, because Arsene is a big uh, part of that game. Uh, so, yeah, that all, there, you, you had all kinds, of, all kinds of writers doing that. I mean, later on, you had Neil Gaiman writing uh, Holmes stories. You had Stephen King writing Holmes stories. So he, was, he, he would constantly show up um, before and after he became public domain. So, yeah, he was pretty... Uh, pretty involved with that. Um, and yeah, and so and after that, he was adapted into all kinds of genres, uh, TV, radio, film, comics. Uh, Dynamite did a bunch of comics featuring Sherlock Holmes. Um, but in the end, what we really consider to be canon, what it, most people consider to be canon, um, are the novels and the short stories that Doyle wrote. So those are, all, are what people consider to be the Holmes canon, and everything else is some kind of deviation from it. Um, and it's become easier to do this uh, more in recent years because um, starting in 1980, uh, Holmes began uh, entering the public domain. Um, and this process kind of went in through the past 20 years between um, the character going into public domain in the UK, uh, copyright extensions taking him out of the public domain, and then him coming back in the public domain in 2000. So there was a really long, uh, complicated uh, process uh, for him to be a public domain character. And even now, he's still not completely public domain. Um, most of the stories now are, 
um, except for like the last two years of uh, Doyle's output, um, which includes the casebook of Sherlock Holmes. So you could not uh, use anything from that or you're going to get sued by the Doyle estate and they are very litigious. Um, but I think, I think um, it should become uh, completely public domain in 2023. Um, and, and the reason I'm saying this is because um, the 2025, uh, I'm sorry, the 1925 things uh, just went into public domain um, a few days ago, or at least a couple of weeks ago. Um, so that means that 1927 would be two years from now. So in two years from now, you're going to end up seeing uh, the casebook go into public domain as well, and and and, the, and at least in the U.S. So uh, check your local copyright laws if you want to be sure. Um, so from there, we'll talk a little bit about uh, how Holmes has been on screen, and there's just so much of it. And uh, this is not even going to be remotely comprehensive. It's just going to be like the hitting the highlights, because he holds the world record for being the most portrayed human character in literary history. Everybody wanted a piece of Sherlock Holmes, and they got him. Um, the first one that we know about is a short film in 1905 called Sherlock Holmes Baffled, uh, which was, it's just a 10-minute little film. I think it's in black and white, and I don't think it has sound, but uh, you could probably find it online. I'm sure it's public domain by now. Um, he was very popular on radio. Uh, there were definitely radio shows, uh, particularly in the 1930s with The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. And that ran from 1930 to 1936. Um, yeah, and that uh, continued to popularize him even after Doyle uh, quit the character. Um, there are other, there, then the film version started showing up um, over time. And the best well-known, the one that people usually thought of before Cumberbatch, is Basil Rathbone um, and Nigel Bruce as Holmes and Watson. And that started with Hound of the Baskervilles. Uh, <laughs> we keep coming back to that story and we're going to come back to it again. Uh, Actually, that's one of the few Holmes films I've seen as well. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I was, yeah, especially if you're a huge fan of that story, I can understand why you would see that. And it was really successful. It launched a 14-film series uh, featuring Rathbone. So. And on top of that, they were also on radio together doing uh, the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes uh, in the 40s, I believe. So, yeah, that that was that version is is still very very popular even to this day. Um, for all that you know, the the new modern stuff uh, has taken hold too. Um, and Rathbone would eventually be considered the definitive Sherlock Holmes in the minds of a lot of people. But he was not the only person who played him over the years. Um, I would say uh, there were if you are familiar with the Hammer horror films and you're a fan of Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, they both got their shots at him. Um, there was a young Sherlock Holmes in the mid '80s. Uh, Disney did their own version with the Great Mouse Detective. Uh, I saw that one. Yeah, and he was also <laughs> named Basil. <laughs> yeah, so for Basil Rathbone. So that that's yeah, another interesting fun fact. Um, and then there were various uh, little un lesser known versions um, since then. But I would say the modern push for Sherlock Holmes was in the last few years. Um, both with the Guy Ritchie film uh, with Don Robert Downey Jr., but also with the BBC version uh, by uh, Mark Gatiss and Stephen Moffat. And if you're a fan of Doctor Who, those guys were very strongly associated with Holmes as, as well as with Doctor Who. And uh, they uh, chose a certain actor that you might know uh, from other things, including Doctor Strange, and that is Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, this is actually one of my favorite, probably my favorite version of the character, um, which kind of modernized Holmes 
uh, quite a bit. But they kept like the core of the character and they adapted a lot of the old Doyle stuff uh, to um, in a modern context. Um, and they really focusing a lot on the friendship between uh, Holmes and, and Watson, played uh, by Martin Freeman. Uh, and really that really was, was a great series. Cumberbatch really awesome. did just an awesome job on that. Oh, yeah. I, it was just too short. <laughs> uh, I would have loved to see some of the other stories, and they're kind of alluded to, but um, I'm just glad to have those. Uh, it was, I, mean, I just thought that Cumberbatch is probably the best person, easily since Rathbone, and, and some might even argue that he's better. Um, so I'm really happy with that one. Um, and it was also so popular that CBS decided to crib it uh, to do Elementary, um, featuring uh, Johnny Lee Miller as Holmes and Lucy Liu as Watson. Yeah, so they uh, they decided <laughs> to change the character of Watson uh, and have Lucy Liu play her. I, I really like her as an actress, so I can't complain too much about that. Um, it's, it's just a very, very strange take, but it, it is interesting. Um, and he's also been featured uh, in video games as well. Um, there was a uh, an Infocom text version that was in the late '80s. I remember that was the first one that I remember, and it was and it was not too bad. Um, but I think probably the one that most people would know now are the ones by Frogwares, where who did like eleven games, I believe, with them, starting with the Mystery of the Mummy in 2002, and I believe the last one was The Devil's Daughter. Um, and so they've had a really long, successful uh, run with that. So, yeah, people have been taking, you know, this this character after he fell in the public domain and doing all kinds of crazy stuff with him and expanding their own creativity and, and taking their own versions with him. And it's just been excellent. And that leads into um, what we've been doing uh, with Michael Nero. Um, why don't you talk about uh, how you became inspired to do that? Well, my, my original inspiration for Michael Nero came from the Sherlock Holmes novel, The Hound of the Baskervilles. Ooh, yeah. um, not, not being familiar with his other stuff at that time. In fact, the book was assigned to me by my teacher in sixth grade. A very fine choice. Right. Um, but uh, uh, I, I guess I didn't, I didn't know that these weren't the kinds of things that Holmes did all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was particularly drawn to the supernatural element of the story, uh, particularly the hound itself. Um, they talked about the 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 curse of this hound in the story. Um, it, it was like it was a myth almost. He appeared as an apparition. Uh, if he he caused the this hound caused several deaths throughout the generations of the Baskervilles. And so the greatest part that I really loved about it is that he turned out to be real. Um, I liked the idea of uh, a highly intelligent, you know, first-class detective working on supernatural cases, um, but cases specifically where uh, things that were thought to be just stories or myth, like uh, Holmes described it in the beginning of the book, turn out to be very real. Uh, that that is what I I decided I wanted a character uh, like that, um, a, a character that uh, was was really really going to be smart, really going to be a sharp guy, and have this where he specifically works on supernatural cases. Um, that that just really appealed to me. Um, I wanted I wanted something that would directly link this character, uh, who turned out to be Michael Nero, to the supernatural, and that would aid in his detective work. Um, my first thought, uh, I think almost an obvious choice, was that uh, the Michael Nero would be clairvoyant, uh, also called the second sight. 
But then just saying the second sight made something hit me. If there's a second sight, why can't there be a third sight? And what would that be like? Uh, I thought about the game Magic the Gathering. I was pretty obsessed with that for years. But mm. um, uh, in that game, there are planeswalkers, uh, which come from different planes or dimensions in, in existence. And I thought about what would it be like if the third sight was being able to see all of those dimensions, all of those planes of reality at once. Uh, I, I, I imagined what it would be like to, to have to look at that, to see these, uh, these creatures and these horrors uh, across, the, across the dimensions all the time. And it, uh, honestly, if I had to go through that, uh, it would fill me with dread. And uh, I wanted a situation uh, where he could escape from that. Uh, I, I wanted some way for him to uh, get out of it, even if just for a little while, because I imagined I imagined that being how I would feel. I'd want some type of respite from it. Uh, the the best escape uh, uh, I I could come up with uh, for that type of condition would be drugs. Um, my father told me about Holmes's seven percent solution. And uh, how he even uh, did some detective work in part to pay for his cocaine addiction. Uh, but as you mentioned, this was also morphine that mm -hmm. he was adding to that too. Um, that, that adds to what I thought would be the better drug because cocaine in and of itself um, what might be a temporary escape. But in my, in my head, I was thinking that cocaine would just make Holmes's mind going to overdrive mm -hmm. and that would make his boredom even worse. Yeah. Uh, so I thought to escape something like the third sight, you needed a real powerful, just take you out of reality drug. And to my knowledge, there is no better escape drug than heroin. Mm. Uh, I've, I've, I've talked to a lot of uh, heroin addicts. I, I personally have not done heroin. Uh, but I've talked to a lot of heroin addicts and that's how they describe it, that it just takes you uh, all the, all the pain, all the worry you might have, all of your frustrations. It's just gone. It's like a heavenly experience. And I figured that would be the perfect respite for Nero's condition. So these things, uh, if you follow the analogy of like building a house. Uh, these things became the foundation of what the character Michael Nero would become. Uh, but I was, I mean, I, I, I had, I, I just had an idea for the character. I had no personality to go with it. And uh, that's what, that was what I had to go with next. Um, I wanted to add, uh, I'd like to add bits, just small parts of myself. Um, in the characters I in, in the characters I create, it helps me to uh, understand them and to think like them. Um, I was a punk when I was a teenager, and even a bit of a goth, but we'll get into that later. Um, I like uh, I I wanted uh, this aspect to be in Nero. Um, I, this this was in part uh, because of his intellectual characteristics. Um, 
I, I having been a punk, I, I know a lot of punks, and they're not just stupid street kids as a lot of people might perceive them. A lot of them are intellectuals, and I thought that that would fit that kind of character that I wanted best. Uh, but what really sealed the personality I wanted for Nero was the BBC Sherlock series. Uh, I, I instantly got obsessed with that show. I, uh, I thought I'd try it out. And next thing I know, I had watched the three seasons. <laughs> uh, I, I, just, I just got all into it. I, I, I loved how Cumberbatch uh, portrayed uh, the character of Holmes. And it influenced a lot of how I wanted Nero to be. Uh, Cumberbatch's Holmes was highly neurotic. Uh, he was obsessed and uh, compulsive uh, with a desperate need to solve mysteries and riddles and problems. Uh, but this, 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 how do I say this? You could, you could call those, I guess, uh, maybe a, a personality issue or, or a problem. Um, it, it was one of those things where uh, uh, it, if it wasn't for these aspects, Holmes couldn't have been who he was. Mm -hmm. And I liked that uh, about, uh, uh, about uh, Cumberbatch's uh, uh, portrayal there. Uh, I, I wanted that, I wanted that in Nero. Uh, and I figured having these things, like in the BBC series, we see that this made uh, Holmes calloused and socially awkward. And he did things that were uh, inappropriate. He said things at inappropriate times, uh, often catching people off guard and stuff like that. But in a way, this too was putting a bit more of myself into the character as I seem to have this obsessive need to solve problems and riddles. And I mean, if... Even just in the middle of conversation, I will often break off into let's figure this out before we move on kind of a thing. <laughs> uh, I, I also have a lot of the same bad social interactions and inappropriateness issues. Uh, reading the room is not my forte. <laughs> uh, I came up with the name Michael Nero uh, actually as a reference to John Constantine who is sort of a supernatural detective, but not really. Uh, uh, but I, I liked the idea of the, the Roman emperor as a last name. And uh, I particularly chose the name Nero. Uh, well, because to put it mildly, the character is a little, Nero is a little mad. Uh, and I liked, I liked having that aspect, like how the, Sherlock Holmes uh, BBC series made him just a little bit insane. I, I, I really thought that was, uh, uh, I, I don't know. I guess I'm, I'm attracted to characters that have mental issues. Well, he does occupy the fine line between genius and madness, so it works. Right, right. So uh, I tried writing this character many times, though, as I've talked about uh, before on previous podcasts, but um, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't quite, you know, I had the, I had the foundation, I had the framework, but, you know, there's all the, all the, you got to put all the wires in, you got to put all the piping in, you got to put the walls up, all that kind of stuff. There was all sorts of stuff I just couldn't quite figure out about this character. And that's when I handed it over to Steve uh, to write the White Druid of Michael Nero title. Uh, 
I had provided the foundation and the framework for the story, but it was Steve that really made uh, the character and his his story a home, if you follow the analogy. Mm-hmm. So why don't why don't you take it from there, Steve? What what was it like, and uh, what what changes did you make for the character? Yeah, I have to say the idea of magic Sherlock Holmes was the thing that, like, okay, yeah, that I can totally get into that, and that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, and and part of the thing with me was that my grandfather was a huge Holmes scholar, uh, kind of an amateur one, but it, it, it was something that kind of inspired me. And one of the things he left me was actually his book uh, of Sherlock Holmes. So I have... I have the whole thing like complete, like all the all the all the novels, all the all the short stories, everything, and I've and I read it on and off. Uh, so that was one of those things that kind of stayed with me. Um, as far as like Nero himself, um, a, there were three main things I would say that came together. Uh, one of them was uh, the BBC version of Sherlock Holmes, and that's probably why we're so simpatico on this character, <laughs> right? Because uh, that version definitely uh, inspired me as well, particularly. Um, the way that Cumberbatch's mannerisms would be. Um, he was always over the top. Um, you know, he was very uh, blunt with his truths and, and things like this and in a way that would constantly irritate everyone. So um, if you want to know, like, why my version of, of Nero can often be a jerk, <laughs> um, I would say blame Cumberbatch because he did it so well. And I just kind of <laughs> turned it up to 11, basically. Um, another one was uh, CrossGen's uh, Ruse title. Um, this was from, I want to say, the early 2000s, uh, something like that. Uh, it was a great series. It was a star, It was written by Mark Wade at first and then Scott Beatty later. Um, and it was drawn by Butch Geis. And it, it is a fantastic uh, book if you can find it. Unfortunately, I think only the first uh, couple of arcs are in trade now. Um, and you and they're out of print on top of that. So it's going to be kind of hard to find. But it was one of those things that I really liked because um, he would take elements of the shadow. Um, there were all these different uh, sort of portrayals of Holmes. Um, uh, the, Simon Archard was the name of the character uh, that he took, but it was very much a pastiche. Um, but not only was he kind of a jerk, and the idea was that the Watson figure... Um, whose name was Emma Bishop, um, we, her job would be to make sure that, you know, this guy had a heart, <laughs> um, you know, that he had like a, a sort of human grounding. And that's kind of what Lou does for uh, Nero as well. So those are the kinds of things that kind of fit in there. Um, and there's actually like one bit in the first issue of, of White Druid, which um, I, I, I don't mind admitting uh, was inspired by the first issue of Ruse, I believe. Um, and, and so, yeah, that was definitely a big, big part uh, of what I did. And then um, a little bit of like Spike from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, I was kind of thinking in terms of him being a punk. Um, and so like uh, if you kind of look at the way that Spike is is very often like uh, I don't care about you and, you know, I, I'm going to say whatever's on my mind and I don't care if it's appropriate or not. Uh, that that little there's a little bit of that in Nero. Um, I think I took a little bit of Billy Idol as an original inspiration um, visually as well. So uh, I was thinking kind of more of Spike than I was of John Constantine. And yet most people really thinking of as a Constantine pastiche. So it's really kind of weird because I didn't really think of Constantine that much at all. Uh, You know, I I just decided just now, if we ever make a film of this, Billy Idol has to play Michael Michael Nero. Him, him, or James Marsters. I, I think that either of them would have done a really good job of that. Um, and, and Marsters actually is American, I believe. So he could, if, if we want to portray him as American, that would be the way to do it. Um, <laughs> right. 
beyond that, I focused on Nero's personality flaws, uh, but took him in different directions. And and I will say one major difference is that um, Cumberbatch's Holmes is a high-functioning sociopath, and he takes pride in this. I don't really see Nero as a sociopath. Um, he's somebody who, yeah, he acts like a jerk and, you know, he seems self-interested in all of this, but all of this is a mask and a front that he puts on because uh, he has to. Uh, I, I kind of realized that the third site um, was basically making him so that he had to adjust um, to it in various ways. And, and so he kind of comes across like, I don't care about anything. Because if he starts caring about what's going on around him, he will uh, care about what's going on with the third site, and it will drive him nuts. So he has kind of learned to cut himself off from everything, including the real world to a certain extent. So that's so a lot of his problem is just coping with the third site in my mind. Um, he's So he's a jerk, but it's a defense mechanism. The whole idea is that underneath this, he really does care about people. Um, it's just that he can't allow himself to because he's trying to hold on to what's left of his sanity. And so a, a lot of this is is just coping uh, as best he can with a bad situation. So yeah, he might be a jerk, but he's not always a jerk. Um, and he and you will see at very times, he's very, very loyal. He's extremely loyal to Lou, especially. Um, but I would say that he's, uh, and, and he also takes his clients very, very personally. Um, and you're going to see that, I think, in the either the next couple of issues of Nero, you'll definitely see that. Um, beyond that, I would say that the need for mental simulation um, is not like just, okay, I'm looking for something interesting to do or I'll be bored. It's, I am looking for something interesting to do so I can block out all of this insanity that I am constantly seeing 24-7. Um, so a lot of times it's like tuning out background noise. He focuses like on the problem ahead of him and on the mental issue ahead of him. And he has to, and then he tunes out the third sight and like the crazy Lovecraftian things and the visions that are like whispering in his ear and things like this. Um, so it's, and that's another, everything that he does is a coping mechanism. Um, he's not a bad guy. He just has to be because of who and what he is. Um, I, I I honestly get the impression with how you write the character that at least sometimes he enjoys being a jerk. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> Particularly to people that have earned it. Like, you know, people that he thinks are completely stupid and just, I mean, it's like, really, I'm putting up with this nonsense. So, yeah, he does like to, there is a little bit of him that he does like to troll people a little bit. But, you know, it's only like a side to him. But there are other sides of him. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go to the mat for you because you've gone to the mat for me like he has with Lou. Um, because not only did Lou save his life, uh, Lou is also the one person who believed him when no one else would believe him. Um, everybody else thought he was completely crazy and insane. And, and to a certain extent, he kind of brought that on himself. But Lou was the one person who saw through the front. Um, and, and he always rewards him for that um, because it also shows him that like he's smarter than he lets himself on. And that's somebody that you know uh, is worthy of um, his loyalty in his mind. So yeah, there's definitely that that aspect of it, um, and you know beyond that, um, I would say one thing I really like is that his relationship with Lou is not exactly a Holmes Watson thing. It's not that Lou is like standing there in the background and saying, "Yes, this is what's going on," and please impress me with your dazzling deductions, uh, Holmes. You know, Lou's not that guy. He's the guy that um, is holding him back from doing things that are ridiculous. Um, and he also see things, the big picture that Nero doesn't see. Um, so Nero is really focused on the case itself, um, the, the, the problem that's ahead of him. 
Lou does not have to deal with what Nero has to deal with. And so he can see the grand design over centuries, um, the grand tapestry of what's going on with the Circle of Shadows and all these other things. Uh, Lou sees that and Nero doesn't. Um, it's the narrow view versus the broad view. And I, I like that contrast as well. And and I also like that, you know, Lou is the person that, you know, genuinely is compassionate, cares about people, um, cares about all life. Um, Nero does as well, but it, for a different reason. And and that is because um, he know, Nero knows what happens when you die. <laughs> um, he, you know, and it's like people that, that he's failed or that have killed him tend to come back and they tend to haunt him. So it's like, yeah, maybe I shouldn't uh, go around killing people <laughs> because uh, I'm then I'm really never going to be done with these people. So uh, a lot of that is the kind of things that I that I added when it came to Nero and how he approaches these things. Um, the drug use I don't focus on as heavily. Um, I keep it in mind because um, it's an important part of his character um, because it's something that he does use to block out the third sight. Um, we're definitely going to see him uh, being uh, faced with the Dark Knight of the Soul and um, looking very longingly at that needle <laughs> um, in 4, I believe. So, I mean, it's definitely something that's going to come in there. Um, but I think you kind of focus a little bit more on the addiction than I do, and it's probably because um, um, I'm, I'm pretty uh, stone-cold sober and uh, have never taken any drugs in my life. So I'm kind of relying on you for uh, knowledge of those things and to kind of help inform what I'm writing. So um, it is very much a give and take uh, between us when we start uh, talking about certain aspects of the character, uh, especially the things that you kind of brought to it that um, are not part of my experience as much. Um, but I think in the end, I like the idea that Nero is influenced by what he sees, um, how the third side affects him, and what he sees with the first uh, third side also affects him. So he sees more than what a, somebody like a Holmes would, and uh, that kind of reacts to him. So it's like, okay, yeah, I know what happens when people die, so maybe I shouldn't uh, go around accepting people dying, you know, so things like that. Um, but it's also because he actually cares about uh, people to a certain extent, even if he doesn't allow himself to admit that. Um, so I think all of these things kind of make Nero um, a, a distinctive character in his own right. And he's honestly my favorite Omenverse character. I would say it's either him or Nazrin from Guardians. <laughs> um, those two are like my favorite um, uh, Omenverse characters that I've written so far. And, he's, and Nero is always, always fun for me. Um, I think it's probably because Nero is kind of like my very blunt side. Um, I, I, I try to be, you know, very um, understanding and, and, and empathetic where I can. And, and things like that. But I definitely have a side of me where occasionally, you know, a part of me just wants to go off on something. And I think that Nero kind of represents that part. And I think it's kind of fun to occasionally exercise that uh, in a healthy way. And I think that this is it. Um, so that's kind of the process that I use uh, when it comes to Nero. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to add to that or anything that I'm ma missing maybe? Well, um, I, I I really want to... Uh... The best, the most, the thing I like the most about how you have put it together um, is the relationship between Nero and Lou. Mm -hmm. um, there is, I mean, depending on which way you look at it, it can seem, it can seem almost like, uh, I, I don't know, it could seem different. But if you'll, if you'll pay attention uh, through the, through the issues, you'll notice that uh, Nero and Lou are very protective of each other. Mm -hmm. uh, that there is there is a balance between them where um, what what Nero can't do, Lou can. What mm -hmm. 
Lou can't do, Nero can. Yeah. There's a certain condependency, but in the end, it's a, like a father-son relationship, and I really like that. Um, so it's not like, okay, these are these two best friends that are kind of dependent on each other. It's that uh, they're a family in, in an adopted sense, and that's something that, that I do uh, want to focus more on in upcoming issues. Right. I really like that aspect as well. Um, I think one of the things I was missing and when I was trying to write that title was that relationship that you established between him and Lou. Mm -hmm. You really nailed that in a, in a way that I was not able to do. Well, that was uh, our episode about Sherlock Holmes and his connection to Michael Nero and uh, making the character and all of that. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed it. Um, if you have any questions, if you have any comments, uh, let us know and uh, we'll hear from you next time. Thank you for listening to the Omen Comics podcast. This has been Steve Sellers and Michael Nunnally here with Omen Comics. And uh, we encourage you to look into all our Omenverse titles, wherever they might be sold, including Comixology, Amazon, uh, Draw Me in Comics, and elsewhere. Uh, if you like our content, please like, subscribe, hit the magic bell for notifications. And until next time, we'll see you in the Omenverse. I hope you've had fun hanging out with us today on ORP. I know that Steve and I have had fun making this episode. If you've had fun too, we invite you to share this episode and help us get the word out. For our Spotify listeners, we ask you to please rate our show as well. That can really help to grow our audience. But to all our listeners everywhere, we want to say thank you for listening and we'll see you in two weeks.